I'm John Edwards, the lute player and artistic director of the Musicians in Ordinary. You're hearing an excerpt from a version of John Come Kiss Me Now, a tune that's in John Playford's English Dancing Master, or Plain and Easy Rules for the Dancing of Country Dances with the tune to each dance. At the end of this podcast, you can listen to this piece complete, along with another country dance. This is part of a series of podcasts supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Spem in Allium Fund of the Toronto Foundation, and York University on the interaction between the mask and public theatre companies in the time of Shakespeare, Ben Jonson, and their contemporaries. In the first episode of this series, I talked to Stephen Orgel, Jackson Eli Reynolds Professor in Humanities Emeritus at Stanford University about court masks and the mask in Shakespeare's Tempest. Perhaps the most famous work to carry the name mask, though, is not a court mask, but the household mask we call Comus, written by John Milton for festivities to celebrate the appointment of John Edgerton, the Earl of Bridgewater, to the position of Lord President of Wales. The mask was performed on Michaelmas night, 1634, at Ludlow Castle, and Edgerton's daughter Alice, two sons, and their music teacher Henry Laws, who also provided the vocal music, all took parts. Stephen Orgel has argued that Comus is a family affair, with the parents watching their children perform the skills acquired in their instruction in rhetoric, music, and dance, and shows how the Edgerton children were already experienced maskers who'd participated in Aurelian Townsend Tempe Restored at the Stuart Court in 1632. Deanne Williams, professor in English at York and Killam Research Fellow, has built on Orgel's work and has written about Comus in her book Shakespeare and the Performance of Girlhood, published by Palgrave Macmillan, and in her current research is looking further into how Comus fits into a tradition of girls and children performing on the stage and in household entertainments. So Deanne, we mainly talked in these podcasts about court masks, uh, but household masks have come up in uh, reference to Henry Unton's funeral picture where there's a procession from a mask scene. The most famous household mask is uh, Comus, or uh, as it says on the title page, a mask presented at Ludlow Castle 1634 on Michaelmas night. That's uh, by John Milton, and you've looked a lot at that. I have, and one of the things that I argue in my work on Comus is that Comus is not so much a document of firsts as it is a kind of a culmination of a long-standing tradition. So what I mean by that is that Comus was often hailed as kind of like the first example of women's performance, first example of uh, women taking speaking parts in a dramatic entertainment. It's had this kind of watershed position in theater history. But what I have found by looking um, particularly at the relationship of Comus to these household entertainments is that, in fact, it looks back to a lot of these household entertainments, which were places where girls, in fact, were able to perform much more freely than, say, in the court mass, but, of course, definitely the public stage, where, uh, where, which was an all-male stage. And Alice, who plays the lady in Comus, she had performed on the stage in court masks. That's true, right? 
That's right. Uh, with her sister Catherine, Alice had appeared two years before Comus in Aurelian Townsend's Tempe Restored. And her brothers John and Thomas appear as torchbearers in Thomas Carew's Coelum Britannicum, 1634. What other kind of roles did little girls play? Well, little girls played uh, actually a very coherent set of roles. Um, when you go back to the Middle Ages, girls played the Virgin Mary and angels and saints. Uh, lots of little virgin parts. For example, St. Ursula and the 11,000 virgins. Lots of opportunities for girl performers there. 11,000 11,000 opportunities. <laughs> um, so when, after the Reformation, uh, when uh, religious drama was suppressed and uh, it was no longer okay to play the Virgin Mary, we have instead girls playing sort of related parts, sort of idealized, chaste roles. Uh, except in more of a kind of a classical context. So you have girls performing as as abstract personifications of Latin virtues, like Fortune, Fortuna, in Cupid's Banishment, a mask performed by girls at a little girls' college in in Deptford. Um, One of the girls plays a speaking part, and she's Fortuna. But there are other parts that represent these sort of abstract personifications, there are also, uh, they could be, rep- rep- they could represent like rivers, um, and we see that in Comus as well, when uh, Sabrina is the goddess of the river Severn, that's very consistent with traditions of girl performances in, in court masks. Um, now in the court masks, of course, the girls would not be speaking, so in a, in a, in a civic pageant where uh, a girl uh, welcomes a, a dignitary, she may speak as the river Thames, for example, but in a court mask, like, you know, all aristocratic performers, the girls are not going to be taking speaking parts, but they will be doing other things. So in Tethys Festival in 1610, which was a mask that was performed to celebrate the investiture of Prince uh, Henry, who was the Prince of Wales, who died in uh, 1612, the young Elizabeth Stuart danced. Uh, along with a group of little ladies, um, they were performing as nymphs and naiads. Mm-hmm. In the first podcast in this series, we talked about that with uh, Stephen Orgel. Exactly. And we played the nymphs dance, which is from uh, uh, Middle Temple and Gray's Inn, uh, performed in the week of Elizabeth Stewart's wedding. And then later in the week, the Tempest was performed with the, with the haymakers dancing with the nymphs again. I can't imagine that the little ladies of the court were allowed to dance with the grown-up men's company later in the week. But it does seem strange that these nymphs were performing earlier in the week and we know they would recycle things into plays, recycle anti-mask things into plays. It seems impossible that they'd be allowed to be with the big boys like that. Well, it's an interesting conjecture, though we can't obviously prove it. But what we do know is that they did dance with little Prince Charles uh, hmm. in, in, in Tethys Festival. So, um, and there were uh, eyewitness observers who remarked on the, um, the cleverness of their steps and how well rehearsed they were. They were able to kind of move around um, in formation in this very elegant way. And they were struck by their ability to do so given the, their great youth. This is, uh, and this is, I think, is uh, something to emphasize that these, uh, the aristocratic parts of the dances are all uh, very much like Busby Berkeley uh, 
performances from 1930s musicals where everybody's just making all these different signs and shapes on the ground. Exactly. And I think that, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about the mask in The Tempest in that context, right? That, that Shakespeare is looking to this tradition of girls performing nymphs in the court masks, even though yeah, there wouldn't have been girls performing on his, his own stage. Uh, that even gets brought out in Ariel earlier, who transforms himself into a sea nymph earlier on in the play, uh, which is an evocation, I think, of a, of, a, of a kind of a girl role. So we have Ariel performing a kind of a cross-dressing earlier in the play, which signals, which signals the presence of girls um, and the kinds of roles that they played. Uh, and indeed, Henry Laws, their singing teacher, who also plays in Comus, performed in Court Masks, of course. Uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves, though. I should do a quick uh, synopsis of the plot. Uh, the Earl of Bridgewater, for whom this is written, it's his household, that's the household mask is being put on it. His celebration for being appointed Lord Lieutenant of Wales is going on. And in a remarkably postmodern example of uh, life within a play or a play within life, the uh, kids are on the way to these celebrations, the lady and the two brothers and they get lost, and the boys go off to find some food. The attendant spirit comes down and explains all this. The attendant spirit is Henry Laws. And uh, Comus, the god of revelry and boozing and carousing, come and they do a little grotesque dance, and then uh, he takes the lady off, come stay at my place overnight. Then the attendant spirit goes and tells the boys, uh, you're sister's in danger and then we see at Comus's place we see the lady stuck to the chair and they have a big argument about chastity and things like that uh, the boys and the attendant spirit bust in she gets freed from the chair by the goddess of the river Severn then they all rush off to the celebrations of being appointed Lord Lieutenant of Wales there's another dance scene with uh, country folk and then there's a dance scene with the aristocrats, as we've seen in other masks. So it's got a thin plot, I think we can say, but so do all masks. It's mainly about the singing and dancing. It's mainly about the singing and dancing, but I'd say it's also about the extraordinary speeches that Alice delivers yeah, she was, uh, as it, the lady. It's, yeah. it's, uh, at court masks, there's no examples, or few examples at least, uh, of aristocrats giving speaking roles. They dance, uh, but they don't do speaking roles. Uh, this is extraordinary that this young woman has got, I don't know line for line, I don't know if you have a count of the lines, but she has massive, great big long speeches about chastity, which would presumably would be delivered to show off her skill in Ciceronian rhetoric that she'd have been educated in. Exactly. It's an opportunity for her to perform verbally as well as uh, musically as a singer, uh, mm -hmm. as well as a dancer. And those speeches are, are, are extraordinary in terms of their length and sophistication. Uh, although they do remind me a little bit of Shakespeare's Juliet and some of the, some of the speeches that, that Shakespeare's Juliet performs as early as 1594 or so. Uh, but of course, uh, Shakespeare's Juliet was 
character performed by a young boy uh, actor, and Alice was performing herself as the lady. And there were there were not before before Alice's performance as the lady. As I can't think of any examples of that kind of speech being given to a woman or to a girl. But girls have been performing since the time of the sort of medieval miracle plays. Is that true? That's true. Uh, in my research, I find in fact that there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of examples of girls taking speaking parts, um, perhaps more frequently than women, because girls were in a separate category as children. Uh, and so girls deliver little speeches of welcome, uh, and girls perform as the Virgin Mary, um, and girls have uh, sort of an active tradition of participation in religious drama uh, and in civic performances, um, just not on the public stage. Mm-hmm. But it's, it does seem kind of funny that the ladies, uh, Alice's more immediate exemplars of how to perform a girl would be, as you say, boys. Uh, the in the public theater. Exactly. We can think about those characters, like Shakespeare's Juliet, in that context. And of course, Milton is very well known for his deep immersion in the works of Shakespeare. And scholars have gone through uh, Comus in particular and found almost a line-by-line sort of set of Shakespearean resonances mm-hmm. to all kinds of different plays. So there's exemplars in the medieval mystery plays, there's also uh, exemplars of girls in household domestic entertainments. Uh, tell us about the Bisham entertainment. Right, so we have, you know, we have this tradition of girls performing in uh, medieval religious drama. We have them performing in civic pageants and royal entries. We also have girls performing in uh, country house uh, entertainments or household entertainments. And that's a really important uh, tradition that Comus as a mask draws on, right? It's not so much, although they're using court performers, they're not so much reliant on the tradition of, of simply the court mask, but also on the more informal tradition of the household masks and household entertainments. So who's the Bisham Entertainment by and where is it done? And So the Bisham Entertainment was... And whose mom is paying for it? Right, exactly. <laughs> the Bisham Entertainment was, was devised um, by a woman called Lady Russell, who was a member of a very distinguished intellectual family. And she wrote it to entertain Queen Elizabeth, who visited her country house at Bisham on one of her progresses in 1592. And... Queen Elizabeth, of course, as we know, was a sort of famously kind of paragon of of chastity and virginity. And so Lady Russell penned this short entertainment that we now know as the Bisham Entertainment to kind of celebrate those qualities of chastity in her visitor. But she also had her own personal agenda, which is she had her two daughters performing in this entertainment, and she wanted them to gain a place in Elizabeth's court. Uh, Tell us a bit about the plot of the Bisham Entertainment. I just told you about uh, Comus. Tell us about the Bisham. The Bisham Entertainment is really interesting as an example of country house entertainment um, before Comus, but one which really... Uh, addresses a lot of the same issues as Comus. So in the Bisham Entertainment, there are two uh, virgins, uh, Isabella and Sibylla, who are played by the daughters of um, Lady Russell, Elizabeth and Anne. 
And these um, virgin shepherdesses uh, rebuff the advances of the, uh, the boisterous and lusty Pan, who tries to seduce them in various ways, trying, trying to kind of uh, get, get on their good side, and then, uh, he, he, and then he sort of chides them as well. He tries, tries various means of, of getting their attention, but, but they remain steadfast and, uh, and resist him. So there, it's a kind of a parallel, there are lots of parallels there to the, to the comas of 20, 20, 30 years later, 40 years later. Absolutely. Pan signals his eventual submission to the virgin shepherdesses by breaking his pipe. So there's a very, very similar uh, point of contact there with, uh, with comas. Uh, so, uh, and chastity is a big uh, topic in comas. It's been suggested because there was uh, some sexual assaults in the Bridgewater family that they're trying to sort of acknowledge or ignore by having the lady deliver these speeches about chastity. You're absolutely right. There was a tremendous scandal associated with the family. It's known as the Castlehaven scandal. Um, The Earl of Bridgewater's brother-in-law, Mervyn Touchett, like the character in James's Portrait of a Lady, he was tried for um, orchestrating the rape of his 12-year-old stepdaughter, Elizabeth, by a male servant. And uh, there were other charges uh, associated with him as well. So there was this tremendous you know, shadow cast over the family mm-hmm. as a result. And so scholars have conjectured that the comus, which emphasizes purity and chastity and the chastity of, of the lady performed by Alice Edgerton is a form of a kind of... Um, distancing themselves. Distancing from, yeah. from, from this contagion. There was also um, another, another story local to Ludlow about uh, another, another rape case. A 14-year-old girl, uh, Marjorie Evans, was raped by some men that she encountered as she walked down a road near Ludlow one night. Um, and uh, she bravely... Uh, press charges. Um, Hmm. And so this uh, story got lots of attention as well. So we have kind of different sort of contexts. We have different points of contact that the mask references. But we don't, I think, even really need to look really specifically at these historical precedents to understand the way that chastity, especially chastity, as an expression of of integrity, of personal integrity and selfhood, was a big challenge for women in the early modern period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, in the the mask, as I say, you've got a, a anti-mask dances of a grotesque, and then uh, everything gets sorted out, and then they run off to the celebrations and see the country folk dancing. So we have country actions, country folk becoming more common in masks than the, the grotesques or adjacent to the, the grotesque anti-mask. And then um, Milton comes along and he sort of, he has the grotesques separate, well separated from the country dances. And the country dances go right next to the aristocratic dances that typically come at the end of a court mask. So I think that's something he's changing, he's doing that's kind of new around at this time as well. I think you're absolutely right about that, and I think you have to keep in mind uh, the Earl of Bridgewater's position in Ludlow, right, which is, uh, you know, a country uh, town in the Welsh marches, um, a border town, really, Mm -hmm. uh, one known for its violence, um, and one where he is the representative of the the crown, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think... He really is bringing order to, uh, whereas with court masks, 
it's uh, all very stylized and everything. He really is the guy bringing uh, order to this part of the of England at the time. Exactly. And one way of doing that is by telling people they're grotesques. <laughs> and the other way of doing that is by incorporating them into a larger context and of showing, order and celebration. And showing a more ordered, uh, virtuous country folk. Rather exactly. Than, uh, rather than um, uh, more rambunctious uh, Morris dancers or haymakers. Exactly. It's a, it's a political gesture and a very wise one, I think. Comus then presents three sets of dances. First, an anti-mask of Comus, and with him a rout of monsters headed like sundry sorts of wild beasts, but otherwise like men and women, making a riotous and unruly noise. Comparable, then, to the apes and witches dance discussed in the previous episode. Later, after Comus's designs are foiled, come in country dancers of the type seen as haymakers or reapers in episode one. Henry Laws, playing the children's attendant spirit, then dismisses the country folk with the song Back Shepherd's Back and addresses the parents to introduce the children's dance, singing that they have come through hard essays to triumph in victorious dance or sensual folly and intemperance. Though Laws' songs have survived, the instrumental music from Comus has not. John Playford was the leading music publisher in the middle of the 17th century, with his son Henry taking over the business in the 1680s. In 1651, John published The English Dancing Master, which provides unaccompanied tunes with choreographies. This enormously popular book went through edition after edition for three quarters of a century, with tunes dropping out and being added as their popularity waned and waxed. Some of the earlier tunes are known from Elizabethan sources, so the time covered by this collection is well over a century. Henry Playford is credited as the publisher on The Division Violin, a collection of divisions, or decorated tunes, on ground basses, sets of repeating chord changes. John Come Kiss Me Now is a tune based on the Renaissance Passamezzo Moderno chord changes, and is from the first edition of The Dancing Master. There are sets of divisions by two composers in the division violin. Davis Mell was a violinist to Charles I, and though the division violin was not published till 1681, Mell would have been a young man when Comus was first performed, and his divisions are very like those you can hear in some of the early Stuart lute pieces in our Bored Lute Book podcasts. We don't play Mell's triple-time divisions, since for a jig we play Johnny Cock Thy Beaver, which is not in The Dancing Master till a later edition, though the divisions are still very much in an older-fashioned style compared to the more flashy modern pieces by Thomas Baltzer, for instance, in The Division Violin. The Musicians in Ordinary Renaissance Violin Band is Matt Antle, Brandon Chui, and Sheila Smythe violas. Laura Jones, bass violin, me, John Edwards on lute, all led by Christopher Verrett, heavily featured here on the violin. <laughs> 